and welcome to the worst bestsellers where we read about how to get away with poison murder so you don't have to i'm renata and i'm kate and for this episode we read the chemist by stephanie meyer joining us to discuss this stockholm syndrome romance is jean also known as fangirl jean hello hi thanks for joining us Sorry, Thank you had to read me. this book. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth it. It was worth it to spend time with you guys. Aww. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> if you're not familiar with uh, Jean on Twitter, uh, the main reason we invited her to read The Chemist with us is because she often has tweeted about her feelings about Twilight, which are pretty in line with our feelings about Twilight. And it's a complicated relationship. Right. <laughs> complicated like the plot of this book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when we were when we were going to dip our toe deeper into the waters of Stephanie Meyer's body of work, we thought, let's see if Jean wants to do this. And here we are. <laughs> yep. If you are not familiar with The Chemist, it is Stephanie Meyer's latest book for adults. It was released without a lot of fanfare. Um, I feel like she's kind of trying to borrow from J.K. Rowling's playbook a little bit of like, okay, well, yeah, I wrote this very successful series for youths, but now I'm doing these adult mysteries. And like, she didn't go as far as J.K. Rowling with the pseudonym, but I, I feel like it's kind of gone under the radar a little bit, although it is a full-fledged New York Times bestseller, so not totally, but. But it is very surprising, like, none of the, I mean, I still I still keep my toes in the waters of the Twilight fandom occasionally, and I didn't see anything through normal channels about it, and most of the, the fandom friends that I still talk to, they uh, they found out from me. They're like, wait, she has a new book out? Like, no. And Which is really interesting, since a lot of, especially the later success of the series, um, when it went to films, was through word of mouth like the spreading of fandom and people getting other friends to go to the movies with them and read the books so it was it's an interesting choice and it's actually really awesome that she was able to hit the bestseller list without calling on that big um um that big fan base to to come out for her so at least there's something i can't help but wonder not to like break open the little bubble of not the real world that we're currently in recording this podcast if real world real worldness <laughs> overshadowed the publication date because it was published in like mid-november of last year right something like that like late last year yeah yeah, yeah. so i mean things were pretty dire it, i wonder if maybe that kind of despair had anything to do with it not yeah. getting as much press. Maybe, but I mean, I was still reading, like, review journals. Like, I didn't see, like, big ads for it or anything like that. And and because I do collection development in my job, I, I feel like if there had been a big marketing campaign for it, I would have seen some of it. And I think, legit, the first time I heard of this is because we do post the bestseller list at our desk every week. And I was like, oh, wait, what? Like, Stephanie Meyer has a new bestseller? Okay. Yeah, I think I remember. I think you texted me. <laughs> yeah. It's like, did you hear about this? Um, yeah, so I I mean, yes, I I think there were big news stories that were overshadowing things, but I I still think that it was sort of 
some stealth publication going on. Yes, because I follow um, actually a pretty wide. Well, I'll, okay, so I stick to mostly romance and and then YA, and but I follow like a large chunk of both of the online communities for those genres, so bloggers, authors, and whatnot. And didn't see and a lot of a lot of the people in those genres that I follow were from Twilight fandom, and nothing, not a peep, nothing, which is really interesting because you know. Typically, when they're doing promotions like this, they'd be sitting out arcs to bloggers to read and promote. And you would think that they would use the same, you know, channels to promote. But, you know. I, I wonder if it's not, like, because I, I know that for as much shit as we give her on this podcast, you know, everything that I've heard about Stephanie Meyer as a person has been so much about, like, using her fame to promote other women. So... Maybe it was, like, her idea to just be, like, well, like, people like me. They know if they like me or not. Like, whatever. I wrote a book. Let's put it out there. You know, I don't need to do a book trailer and go on television being, like, I'm James Patterson, and here's the new book that I definitely wrote all by myself. <laughs> yeah, you know, that. That, that's very possible, uh, especially coming off of the um, the Twilight 10th anniversary, where she did actually a lot of press stuff. For that re you know, in the whole gender, oh, what the heck was it called? The the gender flipped version of Twilight. Oh yeah, Twilight life, life and Death. Yeah, Life and Death. Oh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but she did a lot of press uh, for that. So, so it's not like she couldn't have done press for the chemist. So it may have been a, a choice of like, I'm just gonna put this out and maybe appealing more to the specific genre that this is from, which she cites as like the. Jack Reacher in the um, uh, Born Identity type of yeah. uh, thriller. So this book is dedicated to Jason Bourne and well, and Aaron Cross. Is that a thing? Aaron Cross, yeah, Aaron Cross, yeah. Is Aaron Cross not Alex Cross? Who's Aaron Cross? Oh wait a minute! I'm, oh oh oh! I thought oh yeah no it would be Alex Cross wouldn't it? Uh, oh nope. Uh, Aaron Cross is Jeremy Renner's character in The Born Legacy. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! This, oh my god, this, this, this book fanfic? literally started as Born Legacy fan fiction that she wrote for her friend's birthday. Oh my god! Oh, my <laughs> this is on USA Today. The, oh my god! This came up because while we were talking, I googled. <laughs> Stephanie Meyer oh, Chemist okay. Marketing. And uh, we are definitely going to share this article. <laughs> yeah. And this oh, yeah. makes a thousand percent sense. Uh, Does that mean that, like, oh, my, my brain is, t like, turning inside out imagining Jeremy Renner as Daniel. I don't know what to do with that. I'll, I'll read this to you. She's the idea for the chemist about an ex-agent for the government now on the run from her former handlers started on the movie set of Breaking Dawn in 2011. She shared her thoughts with her production partner, Megan Hibbett. In 2012, The Born Legacy hit theaters and the two women saw the movie nine times. That September, Meyer decided to capitalize on our shared obsession for Aaron Cross and wrote fan fiction for Hibbett's birthday. Or as Meyer calls it, my version of the resolution of the Born Legacy. By 2013, I found I missed the excitement of writing fight sequences and assassinations and one and more. In my files of story ideas, I found my notes for The Chemist. 
And from there, she ran with her idea for her female spy, a scientist named Alex. Whoa. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what to say, but so much of this makes sense now. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah, because we, I mean, even before we had this info, a lot of this definitely felt like a lot of fan fiction tropes. So many tropes. <laughs> Or even just, like, the general setup of, which, like, I'm super guilty of doing this all the time, too, so I'm not knocking it, um, where all of the very intense plot things are happening, but they definitely take a backseat to all of the relationship development and banter and things like that, and are kind of a more distant threat, which I do all the time. (laughs) Um, But, you know, kind of that works better as fan fiction than a professional thriller, you know. Well, yeah, because, I mean, well, if it's fanfic, then you, then, you know, the source material is already really kind of played out all of those action bits. So what you're doing, you know, I mean, depending on the type of fanfic that you're writing, you have that freedom to be like, yeah, you know, you know, aliens are landing and the world is going to blow up in like 10 days, but let's talk about our feelings. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a like a bad thing or even it's actually kind of playing to genre expectations and fanfic but for this it felt really it felt really um for me like it was hitting um the beats of a romance but but being sold to me as an action thriller and i felt it felt like uh, mismarketing in my opinion yeah because there is i i don't read a ton of romance novels um in general, but I, I know that there's a whole genre of like Navy SEAL romance and like you know bodyguard, secret agent, like whatever romance oh, novels, all the things, and everything. I, <laughs> and I feel like this has a lot more in common with those types of things than it does with a real like thriller novel. And I, I agree. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I just think that's more of what it is. Oh, yeah, because they're totally different genre conventions. And if I had gone into it thinking, like, I'm reading a romance, I would have read it in a different way than I read it going into it thinking, okay, well, this is a spy thriller. Well, yeah, absolutely. Like you said earlier, it was very obvious that the relationship is a central feature of the story. That's romance right there and no if i had gone in reading knowing that this was a romance then having the relationship um take up a majority of the narrative and storytelling wouldn't have bothered me at all i would have been like well yeah that's what that's what i came here for because that's what i but coming into it i spent a lot of time going why are we doing what's going on in the like are aren't you in danger like what are we going to get more explanation about what's happening? Like I had different expectations because for like a mystery thriller, you expect to get answers and background on why this is happening. And it it would be more about the chase and about why these people are in danger rather than what they're doing while they're in danger. Right. Like, yeah, like the cover of this book is just a black and white photo of a syringe. (laughs) But I feel like, the cover, if the cover had been, like, a lanky, shirtless dude and a woman, like, looking concerned and holding a syringe, but also, like, looking at the guy, like, I feel like that's what the cover of this book should have been. And also with, like, <laughs> seven dogs on it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all the dogs. dogs. 
<laughs> and then I would have looked at that camera and like, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I have to ask though, like when I saw the cover of the book, and maybe maybe it's just because the seed was there in my brain. I just looked at it and I saw the exact same aesthetic with a slight color palette change, but the same aesthetic of of the Fifty Shades of Grey series. Yeah, I buy. Yeah, because it's gray and it's just like a sort of simplified one thing on this cover. Because those are like it's black and there's a black and white handcuffs and a mask and a other thing. Yeah, 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 tie. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) And so I was like, I I didn't know. Like I was like, is that is that a choice? Like a is that to genre genre standard? Because usually these have like shadows of men. It's very much the James Bond silhouette type of trope in a lot of the covers for these types of novels. And to have something like that. I was just like, is this like some kind of, and again, this is my internal, like, you know, narrative, like, was that like, like a, a slight, was that a, like a tongue in cheek type of thing? Was there something there? But also, yeah, I just didn't like a needle didn't, I mean, I get why it was there in connection to the main character and what she does, but it didn't make a lot of sense to me for a cover. So was just, all I thought was like, oh, so is, are drugs involved in this? Oh, chemist. Oh, oh, okay. Injecting things. I mean, I read the book and I understood it, but initially the impression was weird. Yeah. And it also goes back a little bit to Twilight, because uh, those covers were also maybe a little bit, like, classier <sighs> than your typical vampire novel. Yes. <laughs> and yes. They're, they're going for something with this, and I just, I just think that my cover idea is better. Absolutely. I think your cover <laughs> idea is way better. I think it would have been a little bit sexier, too. Yes. You know. um, okay, but. well, now that, now that we've thoroughly unpacked the cover and the dedication, <laughs> I guess we can try to summarize this plot, which I, before we started, I made myself write bullet points to see if I could do it, and I guess I kind of did, but there's, it's both very convoluted and, like, not that much happens, but also so much happens. But yeah, it's um it's told from the perspective of the main character whose name is not Alex or any of the other names she calls herself, but then she starts calling herself Alex. It is very yes. that's a whole other Yeah, cuz like issue. she's on the run, like her real name is Juliana, but she's on the run from the government, so she has to go by assumed name. So you're like, "Okay, I get it." But then people call her like a mean nickname and she's like my name is Alex and it's like but it's not though it's not (laughs) (laughs) the name thing confused me so much so much because and and I did kind of okay the first chapter is this woman who will for simplicity say call Alex and it starts off she's in a public library and being like real paranoid about uh, how she got to the library and she's like looking around and not trusting anybody and she just has to check her email and also she's stealing books from the library which is not a very sympathetic start to this character <laughs> but she's thinking about how she learned so much from spy novels which she worked for the actual CIA but she's like I learned everything I could from the CIA and now, I, now all I have are these novels and I'm like okay Alex sure So she's, like, stealing books, and then she checks her email, and she has something from the people that she used to work for, and it's, like, vague as hell. It's, like, we need you to come back in, like, there's a new job or whatever, and she, like, panics and leaves immediately, 
and goes back to her home and and like she, after you know... going like the wrong way backwards six hours out of the way three additional exits like yeah like so she totally... can't be followed yeah and then she gets home and she fully like home alones herself like she has all <laughs> my these... favorite part <laughs> She has all these, like, traps that she sets up. She puts a dummy with a wig in her bed, and she has all these, like, poison traps laid out, and then she sleeps in the bathtub wearing a gas mask, and it and there's, like, seven full pages of just describing all the Home Alone things, and I couldn't handle it. It's so good. And that... The, the, so the the implication and that she later goes on to, to talk about a little bit more is that she used to work for this shadowy government agency and she had worked interrogating people using like chemical agents and that's why she was recruited because she was a really good molecular biologist but they called her the chemist because it sounded sexier or something mm-hmm. and but despite this all of the description she gives about like the type of um, chemicals that she's creating and like the the projects she had been working on are all really vague and and just not right and not all together there. Like I kept thinking of um, friend of the show Sarah who comes on for our science books and then tells us how the science is wrong. And I almost texted her like 10 times being like, listen to this, because I, you know, knew it would make her mad. And <laughs> and, and I'm going to be fully honest. I didn't care. Um, like, I don't I have like a basic like high school understanding of science and I feel fine about it. And like, you know, I read The Martian. Everyone's like, oh, I love The Martian. It's so like scientifically accurate. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I skimmed all that shit. I didn't care about like the calculations he was doing. But, you know, it, so if you are the type of person who appreciates actual scientific reasoning being used in your fiction, this book is definitely not for you. Like, I'm, I'm sure that none of this adds up. But to me, I was like, okay, yeah, sure. She mixed the thing with the other thing and it made a poison. That sounds good. Anyway, like what most of what's her hair look like? Well, and <laughs> most of what most of what bothered me about it was like the vagueness. Where like at one point she says like, and I used this thing that was you know like this other drug, but not really because it was much more intense. But then she doesn't explain what it did. Like she just like refers to all of these like chemicals that she's making but without giving any details about like what they'll actually do except that they'll be bad so she has a gas mask so it's hard to tell if we're supposed to know or guess or because with the exception of the one that was um that was like a truth serum I didn't know what any of the other things that she was talking about were I don't know well, it, so for, from my perspective is um, is that that uh, when it comes to things like this, uh, you don't necessarily like the author doesn't necessarily have to be a subject matter expert. They at least have to be good at bullshitting enough that you don't care. And beyond the like, well, I you know whatever, as long as it gets me to the next you know um, plot point. For me, what's hard is if someone is not good at bullshitting in the story, it 
takes me out of the story. And that was the problem for this, is that I didn't want to really care about the science, but it was so obviously bad and vague and, like, someone who's trying to, you know, convince you they're really good at science, but they don't know what they're talking about, and it's very obvious they don't know what they're talking about. It, that was distracting for me. And so, like, a great example of good bullshitting is, yes, I'm going to use a movie, um, mm-hmm. The Rock with um, um, Nicolas Cage, where there's no way that, like... Nicolas Cage is not a scientist, but yet <laughs> they were able to bullshit me enough that not only did I buy that he was a scientist, but that he was a super nerdy scientist <laughs> and a quote-unquote chemical super freak. I mean, if Nicolas Cage can do it, then this book should have been able to at least, you know, bullshit us along enough that we're like, oh yeah, no, she's totally whatever. Yeah, cool. She's she, she sciences really well uh, but I couldn't I could, I could never like and I think part of it was that already from the beginning there were things that just didn't make sense like the library scene which is like telling someone that you're going to take them on a on a on a um on a fast drive but then like sitting in the parking lot for 20 minutes at the beginning of the drive <laughs> that's what that the book felt and it, right off the bat I was like well Already, I don't believe her because she's reading stuff out of books. And now I'm supposed to buy that she knows what she's doing with chemicals or, you know, and I'm just like, no, she has a gas mask on because she doesn't know anything of what she's doing. (laughs) And she knows she can kill herself at any second. So, yeah, it's just give give me enough, you know, to make me want to believe that, that, you know, and it just the story didn't. It did not make me believe at all. Yes, I 100 percent agree. My my problem also was, like, so she sleeps in the bathtub and she puts a dummy in the bed and she, like, thinks about how much she, you know, misses sleeping in a bed or whatever. But also she has this underground trap door or something and it's like, couldn't you, like, just put, like, a cot in the basement or something if you're, like, so paranoid? Like, you've got all this stuff and it seems like you probably could make a more comfortable thing for yourself than the bathtub if you tried well yes like i mean i have slept in bathtubs i mean i've you know uh and there are ways to make it comfortable so again there were things that i was just like if i'm able to figure out that's part of the credibility problem with the character is that like if i'm able to you know critically think my way into being able to make a comfortable bed in a bathtub and you can't (laughs) how am i supposed to believe that you're good at doing any of the things you say you're good at yeah yeah so much of it felt like Stephanie Meyer in advance had been like, this is what I want to do and tried to reverse engineer the plot, the circumstances to the point where she could do it, but didn't actually take into account all of the, cause the bathtub's a good one. Like obviously she had this image in her head of, you know, her protagonist roughing it in a bathtub to protect herself and didn't think the whole thing through. And then like another part, That bothered me was at one point later on, which we'll get back onto the plot in a second, she has kidnapped this guy, and she's trying to get the truth out of him, and previously had referenced her, like, super good truth serum that she knows how to make, but instead of making it, she's torturing him, and I never, like, I kept thinking during the torture scene, like, if you have this really great you know, drug that will make him tell you whatever you want him to say, why aren't you using it instead of this very convoluted thing that you're doing instead? Well, well, 
Oh, go ahead. Hadn't she said that she was trying to perfect the truth serum, but she hadn't yet? But that was like her secret dream at the CAA was to like perfect so fully her truth serum that there would be no need for the torturing, but she hadn't yet. So there still was torturing. Maybe, maybe I missed that part. But I mean, she still, she had something that she she was like, you know, most people think of this as a truth serum. Because like what, it was like her phase one of the kidnapping when she like roofies him and she says it's similar to truth serum and it makes him like very like open and honest. But if he were like a really trained operative like she thought that he was, I think he would have, it wouldn't necessarily have worked. I think, no, I remember. I remember that part. And okay, so this is like a side nerd rant that I have about that whole that that also made me not like her was that like that, that there's a lot of like actual academic, you know, um, a lot of research and data that supports the fact that torture is not effective at all. And so that was my mm-hmm. whole like side part of reading this, going like. But, like, no, why don't you just use the truth serum? Because anybody in this line of work would know that any information that you get under duress, especially through torture, is going to be likely unreliable. And this is, yeah. And then I stopped myself and <laughs> said, let's go back to just reading the book and accept the reality <laughs> that it gave us and not, you know, not use our brains. Let's just t- turn it off and have another drink. Right. And, but, so. but, no, yeah, same. Because, you know, they say people will say anything to make you stop doing torture and, and yeah. Um, but she never had any thought along those lines. Right. And again, was like one of the things of like, it it, it hurts, uh, the character's credibility and the story's credibility. If I feel like I know more than they do about a certain topic. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I am an egotistical asshole, but (laughs) we've had actual, you know, news articles about this because of Guantanamo Bay. So I think most people have read a bit about torture and would know this. Yeah. yeah, and especially if Alex is reading all these spy novels that she steals from the library. <laughs> Although she does say she doesn't really follow the news or politics because she knows that politicians don't actually make the decisions. It's really like the CIA people behind the scenes, which is disquieting. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, she sleeps in the bathtub at Home Alone's her house. Yeah, this is only chapter one. <laughs> but there was a lot to unpack. <laughs> I'm gonna tighten this up, tighten it up. <laughs> um, and gets this, like, response to this email saying that she'll meet her former mentor or no. former handler in a particular place like a week from then. But instead she shows up five days early and takes him by surprise. And he tells her that... They've been trying to replace her ever since um, she ran away from the shady government agency she worked for after they killed her mentor and how they have this problem where this um, terrorist has gotten hold of a super virus that he's going to release and they only have three days to find him and get the information out of him. Can she help them? And she thinks it's a trap, but, like, also she's not sure, so she kind of hedges her bets and decides to tentatively help them and kidnaps the guy who they say is the terrorist, who's, like, this well-scrubbed, 
school teacher who works in a high poverty district who's a volleyball coach and a tutor and you know was left by his evil controlling ex-wife and you know builds houses for habitat for humanity but clearly it's all a ruse and she follows him around for a while follows him on his daily commute gets on the train with him sits down next to him and he throws her off because he starts flirting with her, which wasn't part of her plan. And she kind of like awkwardly flirts back and promises to give him her number and possibly go on a date with him and then drugs him and essentially takes him off of public transit and into her car and drives him to this remote farmhouse location where she ties him to a table to begin to torture him. Yep. And, and she's tortured him for, like, ten minutes when she gets attacked by, a, you know, somebody in, like, a Batman suit, she describes it. And it turns out that it is... So D- Danny is the guy that she thinks might be a, t- a terrorist. And Kevin is his twin brother who... Spoiler alert! Sorry! <laughs> I, I mean, it's revealed pretty quickly. Once, I know, but no, yeah. it- like, but, I can't believe it's supposed to be a big twist because it's so like, oh, yeah, obviously. Well, especially yeah, the second she's showing him pictures of supposedly him I meeting mean... with this like drug dealer. And he's like, that's not me. And then starts referring to the person as like, he wouldn't do that. And he and it is incredibly obvious, obvious, incredibly quickly that it is like his twin brother yep. who... You know, we, we were we were previously led in the narrative to believe is dead. Yeah. Surprise, he's alive. It, right? And it just seems so weird, too, that, like, she... So part of the whole crux of this twist working is that she takes all the information that came from the people who were trying to kill her and took it verbatim and didn't do any research of her own on the situation and somehow they were able to cover up the fact that that there were twin brothers yeah it was very the whole uh, yeah another another thing that i was so distracted by how right badly it was covered up like very clearly she wanted this twin twist but didn't really put a lot of thought into how she could make that happen so that it's not totally obvious and stupid Mm -hmm. but Surprise, it was totally obvious and stupid instead. By the way, not they're identical twins, except that uh, Danny Danny's organs are on the opposite side of his body. They're oh, like yes, yeah, important, important note. Casually dropped in at the beginning. Anyway, so <laughs> Kevin and Alex, like, fight, and Alex deploys all her secret poison traps, and Kevin unleashes all of his trained attack dogs. <laughs> and Danny is still like strapped to a table, like what? And then they um they kind of come to an impasse, and Alex gets Kevin like chained to the floor, but she needs him to call off his dogs because they're like attacking her. And Danny's like, "Oh come on, Kevin! Like she's like she's not the bad guy." And it's like, "What? Like she literally just kidnapped you and tortured you, bro?" And <laughs> he is like. <laughs> instantly immediately forgives her and he's like oh no she thought i was a terrorist it's fine it's like bro it was not fine like none of this is fine 
there's like a couple minutes before Kevin comes bursting in where she finally like she's torturing Danny and she believes him. She's like, oh, you know, it's true. Like, I, I, I could just tell that it was true and that he wasn't a terrorist. And then after Kevin comes in, once he's knocked unconscious, they have like two minutes to talk privately. And he's like, oh, like you know, you're right, like, my brother, who I thought was dead, like, this totally makes sense, I 100% trust you, like, it wasn't your fault that you were torturing me, everything's okay now, and, um, once everyone is awake, and kind of, they have, like, this vague sort of truce that Danny is facilitating, she's like, I bet what happened is that my boss wanted me to die, and your boss wanted you to die, so they set up this thing where I would kidnap your brother so that you would come after me, and we'd kill each other, and even if one of us survived, like, that's still half of their uh, 50% success rate, so... So I have to I have to tell you that as when I got to this part, to this scene, where she's explaining all of this out loud to them, I couldn't help imagining that she had set up a PowerPoint presentation to help, <laughs> like, show them the whole structure of the trap that they had all walked into, because it felt that, like that showy or that telly versus showing of just like, Oh gosh, we're being lectured on how to trap somebody into killing each other. <laughs> it was like fully like Emperor's new groove, like pulled down, <laughs> like, pulled down the little screen out of nowhere. <laughs> like explain. <laughs> totally. What are we doing right now? <laughs> but anyway, they, they, she convinces, well, she and Danny convince Kevin that they should just be cool bros and then they team up together and they go to Kevin's dog training house slash bat cave and hang out there and there's a guy named Arnie there who is Kevin's dog training bro who barely ever talks and doesn't do much except train dogs and they come up with this plan where they're gonna find out they realize that for whatever reason, they, they're able to ascertain that the only people who know that they're still alive are, like, a very small number of people at the very top of their shadowy government agency. He worked for the CIA explicitly. She worked for something that was, like, only ever called the department or something like that. So they decide they're going to pretend that she succeeded in killing both brothers and she's going to send an email to her former handler being like, I killed the guys, what happens next? And Kevin is going to go to D.C. and spy on them and figure out who all of the people are who are in charge so that they can then kill them and then get on with their lives because everyone will think they're dead at that point. So Kevin... Which is really just to get Kevin to go away so that the, that the two of them can fall in love and have you know, sex while he's off doing something. Sorry. By sex, I think you mean fade to black cuddles. Yeah, fade to black, sorry, because I couldn't even get that, man. <sighs> and, uh, yeah, so Kevin goes off to D.C. to spy, and they're alone with their feelings. And their and quiet Arnie. friend, Arnie. Yeah. And 25 dogs. So <laughs> many dogs. <laughs> and, um, he, uh, fucking what's his name Danny keeps like kind of coming on to her with like romance but she just so doesn't understand romance because it's not a part of her life and it's not who she is 
that uh, she doesn't she's realize. She's not like it. other girls. She <laughs> is zero percent like other girls. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of like they kind of drive this home extra. In addition to like making her be like plain and smart and brainy and like not sexy. Like, she specifically goes on this rant about how she always dresses androgynously and uses androgynous names, you know, so that no one can ever really tell that she's a woman because it makes it easier for her to blend in. And, oh, God, I don't even want to... There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. (laughs) And And she has a separate rant where Kevin's like, oh, I heard of you. They called you Oleander because of poison. And he's like, I didn't think you'd look like this. And she's like, oh, what? You thought I'd be like a hot blonde with like big boobs? And he's like, oh, yeah. And she is like, very, and and later they do meet a hot blonde with big boobs. And she's just like, it's it's very like Bella Swan who was like, I'm just like a little brunette and I'm clumsy and like nobody would ever think I'm pretty. But everyone thinks she's so pretty. And it's, it's very carrying over a lot of the same sort of, complicated relationship to other women that Stephanie Meyer was sort of broadcasting throughout the Twilight Saga. Yeah, very much the same situation because it was really weird to me that like there were no other women, you know, that she worked with. I mean, cuz again, you know, in in a real situation, like it see it's it's out of place that she didn't have other female co-workers it's out of place that we don't meet another woman till what like over halfway through the book yeah yeah like 75% I would say right and then that at at best they end up being you know uh you know um cautious allies I should say like but it's very it's it's very weird It, it it becomes very like almost a kind of like isolationist fantasy much like um at least with twilight with that series went on enough that more women became involved just by virtue of having such a large cast and needing to pair people up and all that but with this it felt like you know that the old that the only other woman really existed for a very you know specific function in the story and Mm -hmm. it was because she had to inhabit all of these pretty much sexist stereotypes about women. And it was very, and to be contrasting to Alex of like, look how, you know, again, like Alex is so like, I'm not like other girls and I'm just like the guys and I can hold my own, um, you know, and then that is my big, you know, that's my big uh, roadblock to having love is because, you know, of, of the, it was just weird. It's very, yeah. A lot of, the lot only of other, the only other woman too, besides Alex and then later this woman Val, who we'll get to, that we get any development of or explanation of is uh Danny's ex-wife, who Ooh. is just so stereotypically like a gold digging kind of like which, super hot, super. Which she's a gold digger bitch. who married as a public school teacher, by the way. And then Yeah. And then like <laughs> divorced him and took all of what I imagine is a very limited amount of money that he had because he wasn't making enough money but also when he later describes their relationship I don't know like nothing about that relationship makes sense nothing about what he describes follows the arc that it should even as he's describing it but like 
the only descriptions we get of this woman is how like she was like super hot and made everything about herself because she was so self-centered and like only cared about herself and not about Danny and just wanted money and you know to have status and not didn't care about like the super nice husband who she had who she should have respected there well, is... and that's really how you make a, a woman you can how you make a guy who's had a, a failed relationship but it not be about him being you know having any failures whatsoever it's all the woman's fault yeah um oh. there is one other woman in this uh she is a mother and she has a child and that's basically all you need to know about her oh yeah yep yep um, so anyway, they're on this farm while Al- uh, while Kevin is spying in D.C. And Danny makes a dumb, dumb move and because they're identical twins, goes into town and like buys a bunch of stuff and chats with a bunch of cashiers in their truck that they have at the farm. That's like a big secret. And when he comes back, Arnie and Alex are both like, you dumb, dumb. Why did you do this? Like why would you go out and and show your face which is also your brother's face all around town come on man and he is just so bashful and he just doesn't understand this spy life which is kind of a a repetitious thing with him where they're like here's a very obvious safety thing that we need to do and he doesn't do it because he's just so genuine that it would never occur to him Mm-hmm. And by the way, like why he went into town, because they had all these frozen meals and stuff that were fine, but he wanted to cook a nice dinner for Alex and he went to the movie store because he wanted to show her a foreign film like they talked about on the train. <laughs> Which I, I, yeah. I think we're supposed to be like, oh, that's like, he's such a sweet guy, but it's mostly like, you're real dumb, Danny. Like, <laughs> you're too dumb to live. I'm sorry. Oh. It's just, I, yeah, it's like, it's just like, how did this guy survive? I mean, I, I mean obviously he wasn't living in, 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 in a dangerous field, uh, you know, as a teacher, but still it's just like, this basic, so basic. That, yeah, that that's, I, that's just... Again, it pulled me out of the story where I was like, okay, this makes no sense why he would do this, other than the fact that, you know, he's clueless and that they needed something to happen in the plot at this point. <laughs> yes. Especially because we learn um, as they try to start to teach him different spy skills, since he's going to be living on the run now, that apparently spy skills are genetic mm-hmm. and that he's always been like super good at shooting and all of these other things. But he just downplayed it because he knew that Kevin liked to win. So when they were kids, like he just let Kevin win. But now that he is in a dangerous situation and people that he love are in danger. All of these apparently latent super spy abilities have come to the forefront for him. Yep. Um, but anyway, uh, be- because he went out to get food, uh, the, the bad guys find them. And I mean, they send their like their lackeys. So it's not like the main bad guy, but like some lackeys come and they kill Arnie, the quiet guy and they injure one of the dogs, and they have, um, what, the, Alex and Danny have to, like, abandon Kevin's house and go on the run to Florida to a place that Danny vaguely remembers from his childhood. And there's just, like, a long, like, road trip of, like, 
I mean, it's just there for, like, a cute road trip where they can do, like, dumb flirty shit in the car while they're on the run, basically. It's, like, way too long. And then they get to Florida. Do they even do anything in Florida? They had sex. Yeah. They had fade to black. Yeah. Um, but then they... Like, this whole section felt like the camping part in in the Death of Hallows. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, they switch cars and they switch from like the giant black Humvee that Kevin had in the Batcave at his <laughs> farm to a like nondescript silver hybrid SUV that Alex like passes out because she's so happy because it's so nondescript and everyone else is like, you're, this is very strange. But, you know, I think we're supposed to think it's quirky. This is that same weird, painfully specific vehicle thing that existed in Twilight as well. Yes. That I was just like, I don't know why, like, it doesn't, it didn't even really make much sense as a character feature for Alex. I mean, I know that the narrative goes through painful extras try to make it make sense why she would care about, like, this plain vehicle. But to me, I was just like, what? This is like, why does a vampire drive a Volvo other than the, you know... (laughs) The rhyming. I don't... <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of time spent describing vehicles, even, like, later... Let's just jump ahead, actually. Yeah. That Nothing really happens in Florida, and then they go to D.C. to join up with Kevin, and they stay up with... They stay at Val's house, which Val is a prostitute that Kevin knows, and who he had once hired to try to seduce Danny to cheer him up, but because Danny... So that- what? Not just to cheer, not just to cheer him up, but so that she could get into the house and I assume knock him out so oh, that they shit. could put a tracking that. device into Danny so that mm-hmm. Kevin could just keep I an eye on him because he was worried about him. I forgot about that. Oh yeah, and that's how Kevin found them in the first place when she was torturing him in the basement or whatever uh, yep. in the farmhouse. Um, God, so weird. Kevin's so weird. <laughs> So many boundaries. Like, there are no ba- like no healthy boundaries in that family. Yeah, because anybody in this book. Yeah, because Kevin's like, I knew because I was in the CIA, I would put Danny at risk, so I needed to take these measures to protect him. <laughs> like, I just don't know. And that that's also why Kevin was quote-unquote dead. He wanted to fake his death to protect Danny. Fucking mm. whatever. Um... So they meet up with Val, and she's, like, so beautiful, and Alex is like, I hate her, she's pretty, but then it turns out that Val, and this is another thing where I was like, I can, I literally can't believe that Alex has not, like, thought of this before, but uh, Alex's face is all banged up, and Val's like, you know, I've got a lot of makeup, because I'm, like, a girl, I could probably, like, cover that with, like, makeup if you want, and Alex is like, okay, I guess, and then she does it, and Alex is like, oh my god, you can't even tell I have a black eye. And, like, you have been on the run from the CIA for, like, years, and you never thought of makeup? Like, <laughs> girl. Oh, and there's, like, and I have, like, a, a note that I remember, like, he, didn't he say something? Like, he was glad that Kevin beat her up so that, oh, I got, I'm trying to remember it specifically because I remember I actually, like, I had to put the book down and just lay on the, on my couch and groan for a while because it was so creepy that Danny was like, I'm so glad that he beat you up so that, like, you couldn't run. And I'm like, I don't know how any of that is not really terrible and not a compliment. And this is just creepy and weird. 
<sighs> okay, yeah. so sorry. Sorry, sorry. It's yeah, so. no, it, it, everything, I mean, it's all very weird. I'm trying to remember that, because it was something like, because she's always trying to be in the way of Bella Swan, like, very self-sacrificing and very, like, okay, Danny, like, you just take this fake passport and go, and, like, I'll deal with it. And Danny's like, no, I want to help, even though I have no useful skills. And so I think, yeah, it was something like because she was so bruised and scarred at that point, she would have been recognizable. So she needed to stay with them. And it yes, and heal. That's right. That's right. And And he was like, I'm so happy for uh, he was so thankful for her bruises. And he was happy that his brother beat her up so they could talk more and get to know each other. Yeah. Like, okay. Who said that? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. <clears throat> uh, anyway, so they're hanging out with Val, who has who's like a very successful prostitute and has like a huge palatial penthouse in D.C. where apparently no one will ever think to find them. And also, she has many cars that are given to her by admirers, and the one that she likes the least is a Jaguar that was that we still get like a paragraph describing it. Because Stephanie Meyer just really is into cars, you guys. Really she's into cars. Really into cars, and she's really into people cooking Italian food for each other. Yes. Yes. Which also happens. It happened at Kevin's house, and it happens at Val's house, and they're just going to pasta and she town. Has, she has a really interesting perspective on sex work that this woman must have, like, the, emo- the most amazing skills to be able to just be showered with all of this stuff. Yeah, and, and not not be on any kind of watch list to be <laughs> going to jail or anything because she talks about like international clients and stuff too, right? Yeah, and and I mean, and she doesn't take any clients like that whole week question mark that they're staying with her. Like, she's on an extremely flexible schedule. Well, and that and that just like. You know, again, another aside of the things that, like, really bother me about that is this, like, kind of, like, within this, the functions of this world that the only way, the only way that a woman could possibly have this much independent wealth is if she's in sex work, Um, even though, like, there's no reason that that she couldn't be doing, I mean, nothing against sex work, but it's, like, she couldn't be any other thing, like... Like another former spy who used to work with Kevin, right. you know, like like why why jump to this and why make that character such like an over over the top, you know, sexual object and and figure of competition ish. It's just weird. It just it struck me as very like a strange choice that I couldn't really understand. And I think it's also kind of like we talked about when we read Twilight Life and Death, the gender swap Twilight, that it seems like Stephanie Meyer has sort of halfway received a lot of the criticisms that Twilight got from a feminist perspective. And she's like, oh, so you guys didn't think Twilight was feminist. But what if, you know, um, what if the girl is the vampire? What about that? But then it's still, like, really weird in a different way. And I feel like this is also that, where it's like, oh, you guys don't think I know what feminism is? But what if I have this sex worker who's, like, really empowered? And what if, like, she doesn't have to be mean to Alex? What if they're friends? Would that be a shocking twist? But it's just weirdly done. But I kind of feel like that's where she was trying to get to. It's weird, too, that she's a sex worker, 
because this is so like PG when it comes to relationships. Yes. Like we were, is it even ever like explicitly said aside from the part where they're talking about like, they're talking about when he was trying to put the tracking chip and he's like, Oh yeah. Like I hired this prostitute to go after you. But aside from that, is it ever explicitly stated that she's a prostitute? I don't think it is. No. And and it always seems to be just the way that Kevin refers to women. Right. Cause Kevin's a Like through, I mean, that's a pretty much his character and his personality is that he is, he is like all the worst parts of like Emmett and Jacob smashed into this sexist dude, Batman guy and because I think that is like he just refers to her as if she's uh you know almost it yeah because I don't remember because she just talks about having friends right I don't even think she refers to them as clients she refers to I have a friend and admirers she calls them admirers yeah right so yeah yeah it's all like really vague much like all of the rest of the sexuality in this book, um, yeah. which, which is f- fine, I guess, but just a weird choice to be like, not only, I mean, not only aside from the fact that like, oh yes, the only other woman in this book who is rich is a prostitute because it's the only way you could be rich, a rich woman is to, to choose to do this and then be like, but I'm never going to t- even mention a sex act by name. Well, yes. I mean, it, like, I mean, just the choice of not having a lot of sexual content or even references to sex. So when it then highlights the choices you make as, you know, or that the story makes when it does, you know, deal with sex. What is that? You know, that pretty much characterizes what sex looks like in this world and to these people which is weird is what what sex looks like in this world is it's very weird it's yeah. somewhat transactional um and and it functions on really really imbalanced power dynamics and and does so in a way that that normalizes it like it's totally normal for people to be like this and for a guy to want to have sex and fall in love with someone who's torturing him like seconds after she stops torturing him (laughs) and that that, and so like you said like that whole that if this if this is a response to feminist criticism about the relationships in twilight it's terrible response because um, gender bending this doesn't change the, dynama- the dynamics that much at all. Um, Daniel really just seems just as uh, misguided and and really somewhat you know damaged in his like almost uh, like excessive need to cling to her and to make something of this relationship that he has with a. Fr- I mean, it is very much a Stockholm syndrome romance in that like. He's trying to make everything okay that happened, but it it's not okay. She tortured you. She drugged you. Like, this person is not a good person. And um, he's trying to kind of Pollyanna his way out of the situation to make it better, which isn't romantic. And it's actually kind of sad and makes you really worry about him. Um, and then, then to have him do other things where he's obviously like, you know, can't protect himself at all, even in the most basic sense of don't go outside because people know what you look like and people who are trying to kill you will find you. And he can't even follow that. It just makes him seem 
um, not appealing and, and, um, and really kind of sad. And, and that's not romantic. And, and it makes that then makes the relationship between him and Alex seem kind of twisted and um, not romantic and very weird. And, and just because she's a woman doesn't mean that she can't take advantage of someone who um, is obviously emotionally stunted enough yeah. that he would cling to anybody, any kind of woman. Um, so, like, yeah, no, it doesn't, doesn't, like, you didn't teach this feminist anything. You just made me really sad. Yeah. <laughs> she would be really sad. Yeah. Let's, let's try to wrap up the last few threads of this plot, because this is where, to me, it especially fell apart, but... Let's try. We're seventy five percent. Yeah, we're seventy five percent into the book now. There's like a hundred and so pages left, and we finally meet the bad guy. Kind of, yeah. Because okay, so th- they've known that their former employers want them dead, and they're just like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, and then uh, she's just been like trying to remember things. Basically, she's just, like, remembering all the people that she used to know and trying to see what makes sense. And what... She thinks back onto her job and she figures out the time period where her former boss slash mentor first started getting paranoid and talking to her about getting a, uh, a plan to get out of this line of work. So she figures, like, this time period must be when it happened and it had to have been something that only a few other people knew about so she started had started to make a list and when she was talking about the list one night uh kevin makes a comment and she realizes that something that kevin says matches up with something on her list and they figure out what the inciting incident of them almost being killed or of them having their bosses send people out to kill them is and it ties to a person who they can't remember the name of and then they're watching a news broadcast and the person who's mentioned for the first time here who is going to become who's the the potential running mate for uh the president in his re-election campaign is mentioned on the news and it clicks in her head that this was the other person involved in that case. Well, and his name is Wade Pace. And like, is this Mike Pence though? Like, it's, it's like very <laughs> similar. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So, so it's, his name is Wade Pace and he had, he had been the person who had arranged for this virus called the Tacoma plague to be manufactured and then it was stolen by a drug cartel. And then so the government had to be like, no, we didn't make this biochemical like uh, agent or whatever. It, we don't know where it came from. And so, but they did though. And so Alex knew about it and I guess Kevin knew about it. And somehow these two people who have been, who have already faked their own death, somehow their vague knowledge of this could stand in the way of Wade Pace becoming vice president. So he's the one who has been trying to put hits out on them, which that seems like that would raise more questions than just them being out there in the world. But yeah, whatever. so they come up with a plan to get rid of their former bosses and this guy. And uh, Kevin goes off to do one part and, 
uh, Alex does another part, and halfway through Alex doing her part, she realizes that Kevin's been kidnapped. So she comes up with a plan that involves kidnapping a child and pretending she's putting the child in harm's way to trick her boss into taking her to where Kevin is. Because it turns out, like, he just thinks this is all stupid anyway, and he never wanted to do it. He just went along with it for reasons. Yeah, because um, he... Because after Alex left, they had never been able to get government funding for their poison lab anymore. And they were like, no, we'll just do, like, old school torturing. That's fine. We don't need any more poisons. But her boss is like, yes, poisons. So I think he sort of, like, (laughs) wants Alex to come back and do some poisons on some level for some reason. So he's kind of in it for that reason. Yeah. It's all whatever... And they, so they go, and she pretends to be a poisoner, a poison interrogator, and pretends to interrogate Kevin, but really she gives him this drug she made that, like, gives you super strength for a limited amount of time or something. And they get into a fight, and they kill a bunch of people, and Danny gets shot, and he should be dead, but remember, he's a mirror twin, so the bullet didn't go through his heart, it just lodged into his chest, which I'm sure is fine. Yes. <laughs> Which I'm just like, but your lungs still exist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, and I mean, to be fair, like, he is still bad off and they have to go do, like, emergency surgery yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it is meaningful that he is a mirror twin, which I had completely forgotten about. And I was like, oh, yeah, she did say that. <laughs> um, but they go back, you know, all the bad guys are dead. Uh, Wade Pace dies off screen. <laughs> Yeah, because they had had poisoned his Nicorette patch. I had to go back and reread it because I was like, what happened to him? This is so fast. Wait a second. I lost track of... Okay, so wait a minute. (laughs) Like, then he dies off screen. Yeah, no, sorry. (sighs) Yeah, it's Uh not that eventful, really. But then now all their enemies are dead. They do emergency surgery on Danny in a vet's office. And then flash forward to an epilogue where they're in Colorado, the three of them running a very successful restaurant, but declining to appear on reality on like a Food Network show about good restaurants. And this epilogue is from the point of view of, like, a production assistant on the Food Network who's like, I don't get why these people don't want to be on our show. That's weird. Bye. And it's a a strange choice. (laughs) That was so charitable of you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, because, yeah, when I got done reading that, I was just like... I, I, if I hadn't have been sitting in the bookstore reading that last bit, I would have, like, worried that I was, like, drunk or had, like, died somewhere. <laughs> like, because I'm like, I don't, none of this makes any sense. How did it end like that? And, yeah, because it was, it was very, yeah. And I would like to say that you guys did a great job of describing the end of it. And if it does come off sounding like, like it's really kind of thrown together in the description, it's like because it's true to the book. It really just feels like it's like that that you know Meyer and and her editing partner were just like, and then they do this, yes, and then we'll make sure that his organs are on the other side of his body, so we'll think he's dead, but he's not, and yes, 
yeah, that's what it felt like reading it. Yeah. Our listeners are probably tired of me bringing up this review, but I love it. Somebody left an iTunes review for us once that was like, you know, it's so stupid. Like, they pretend like they can't understand what happens in the books. And it's, no, we don't pretend. This is what the books are really like, guys. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. no. It's genuine. So this is where I'm going to introduce that, like, you know, if, 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 she had been my friend and she had come to me with this manuscript and said what do you think that I would have pitched and said you know what first off it would be way better as a YA novel mm-hmm. where instead of like Ale- the story isn't about Alex but it's about Alex's daughter who's on the run then it would make sense that she's reading you know um, uh, spy novels and doing the whole home alone setup yes. and you know, it still doesn't really fix the drugging the guy that you end up falling in love with but you know it's a yeah. decision that makes more sense coming from a teen, yes. Well, or anybody who isn't may know some things, but not not know a lot of things, and may have made you know makes questionable choices because they're in a life or death situation, but they're not as experienced. And that's the biggest problem with with Alex's character is that she doesn't feel as capable as she should feel in this position because of the choices and um, actions that she does. But with someone you know, who we don't have those higher expectations, a lot of what she does would have been way cooler. You would have been like, oh, that's actually, or it would have been more understandable of like, well, yeah, she doesn't really know what she's doing. And, you know, and especially like for someone who you know, may have like lost their parent and is on the run, torturing someone to find out what the heck is going on might be, you know, less of a, like, I'm a morally dark monster and this is what I do. It'd be more like, I just need to figure out how to stay alive a little bit longer. A lot more, um, you know, sympathetic character. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And there are some YA novels that are a little bit along those lines. And I do think Stephanie Meyer is probably trying to, like, distance herself from Twilight a little bit. Hence the shift to adult books. But... I don't know if that's the best choice for her. Yeah, yeah. This definitely also felt like it, it hadn't had it, it didn't have as many passes in editing as it mm-hmm. should have because it still felt really well, like like the end felt really slapped together. Yeah, and like it could have used a little bit more to, retooling to to seed some of this stuff a little bit more subtly because to me that the whole organ thing it stood out to me because most people don't know that that's a thing. Um, I have a relative that has it. So that's why I saw it. And I was like, I never see this in books. Something's going to happen with that. (laughs) But um, yeah. So. All right. Well, that's basically this book. Yep. Yep. So. Yeah. Let's um, let's move on. I think to our dramatic readings. Sounds good. So our first dramatic reading um, is is going to be Alex's amazing little home alone routine, and I will just be reading that uh, myself. It... Okay, so this is um, this is from chapter one. This is introducing our very capable heroine as she goes through her home alone bedtime routine. She stumbled through the only door into her bedroom, sleepwalking through the routine. Enough light made it through the mini blinds, red neon from the gas station across the street, that she left the lamp off. First, she rearranged two of the long feather pillows on top of the double mattress that took up most of the space in the room into the vague shape of a human body. 
Then the Ziploc bags full of Halloween costume blood were stuffed into the pillowcases. Close up, the blood wasn't very convincing, but the Ziplocs were for an attacker who broke the window, pushed the blinds aside, and shot from that vantage point. He wouldn't be able to detect the difference in the neon half-light. Next, the head. The mask she'd used was another after-Halloween sale acquisition, a parody of some political also-ran that had fairly realistic skin coloring. She'd stuffed it to roughly match the size of her own head and sewn a cheap brunette wig into place. Most important, a tiny wire, threaded up between the mattress and box spring, was hidden in the strands of nylon. A matching wire pierced through the pillow the head resting on, rested on. She yanked the sheet up, then the blanket, patted it all into shape, then twisted together the frayed ends of the two wires. It was a very tenuous joining. If she touched the head even lightly or jostled the pillow body a bit, the wires would slip silently apart. She stood back and gave the decoy a once-over through half-closed eyes. It wasn't her best work, but it did look like someone was asleep in the bed. Even if, even if an intruder didn't believe it was Chris, which is the name she's using at the beginning of the book instead of Alex, he would still have to neutralize the sleeping body before he went on to search for her. Too tired to change into her pajamas, she just stepped out of her loose jeans. It was enough. She grabbed the fourth pillow and pulled her sleeping bag out from under the bed. They felt bulkier and heavier than usual. She dragged them into the compact bathroom, dumped them in the tub, and did the bare minimum of ablutions. No face washing tonight, just cleaning the teeth. The gun and the gas mask were both under the sink, hidden beneath a stack of towels. She pulled the mask over her head and tightened the straps, then clapped her palm over the filter port and inhaled through her nose to check the seal. The mask suctioned to her face just fine. It always did, but she never let familiarity or exhaustion make her skip her safety routine. There is honestly way more, but I feel like that's enough to give you the sense of this. Oh, yes. It's like her... her... The safety routine just feels too much like a beauty routine. Like you're yeah. even. <laughs> and so much of this, it just seems like re like every night you reassemble your dummy from scratch. Like if this is really a thing you're committing to, I don't know. Right, right, yeah, no, a lot of that, a lot of that hiding out stuff didn't. Again, you know, I, you know, it it is the distance of like I can critique it all because I'm an expert on espionage, but it does seem like first off, you probably wouldn't stay at the same place as often and leave all of these telling signs kind of out like you wouldn't. I don't know. Some of it just kind of seemed like like again, it's like that initial image that you may have had when you were thinking of the story and that she liked it so much she kept it in but then it kind of breaks down when you actually read it <laughs> it just feels like there are times when it seems like she's way too paranoid and times where it seems like she does things that don't make sense for her level of paranoia like she's not paranoid enough absolutely yeah. so our next dramatic reading is from kind of the middle of the book when Alex and Danny are hanging out, I believe at Kevin's place and talking about their romantic feelings for each other. And it's pretty not great. And uh, I will be Alex and Kate will be Danny. First, but not entirely to the point, I'm not afraid of you. Why not? 
because now that you know who I am, I am in no danger from you, and I never will be, unless I change into the kind of person who should be. Her lips screwed into a half-pursed frown. He was right, but that wasn't really the issue. Second, still tangential, I think you've been spending all your time with the wrong kind of man. A hazard of your particular work, I'd imagine. Maybe, but what is the main point you're dancing around? How I feel. How you feel. And how can you be sure what you're feeling? You're in the middle of the most traumatic experience of your life. You've just lost your whole world. All that's left is a brother you don't completely trust, your kidnapper slash torturer, and Arnie. So it was probably 50-50 and whether you'd attach yourself to me or to Arnie. This is pretty basic Stockholm Syndrome stuff, Daniel. I'm the only human female in your life. There aren't any other options. Think about it rationally. Think about how inappropriate the timing is. You can't trust feelings born in the midst of severe physical and mental anguish. I might consider that, except for one thing. And what's that? I wanted you before you were the only human female in my life. This threw her, and he took advantage, placing both his hands lightly on her shoulders. The warmth from his palms made her realize that she'd been cold without recognizing it. She shivered. Remember when I told you that I'd never asked a woman out on a train before? That was kind of an understatement. On average, it takes me about three weeks of fairly regular interaction, along with an embarrassing amount of encouragement from the girl before I work up the nerve to ask someone to go for casual coffee. But from the second I saw your face, I was willing to leap miles outside my comfort zone to make sure I saw it again. She shook her head. Daniel, I roofied you. You were high on a chemical compound with manifestations similar to ecstasy. Not then I wasn't. I remember. I felt the difference before and after you shocked me. That was when things got confusing. And before the drug, I was already neck deep. I was trying to figure out how I was going to get off at your stop without looking like a stalker. Yeah. And, and uh, I know... Spoiler alert, you can't do that. You can't get off at her stop without <laughs> looking like a stalker. <laughs> and also... But I was if... just like... The... Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, and this is like sort of Axe's feeling. This is like very typical romance novel of like... I'm nobody special, like, nobody would, like, feel that way about me, but in this case, it really, truly is, like, they had known each other for three minutes, like, why would he feel this way about her? It does not make sense, and it's really weird. It is so weird, and she does such a good job of laying out exactly why it's weird, that's what makes the scene even more bizarre, is that, like, (laughs) no, listen to her, man, seriously, like, no, this makes no sense, and then there's other little things, like the shock, which is basically the dazzle, like, you know, I hate to bring the Twilight thing in, but there's just, like, and she was cold until he touched her, oh, that just, (sighs) and at one point, doesn't she call herself a monster? Yes, she does. Yeah. When yeah. she's talking about, like, all the torturing she's done. And he's like, yeah, but you thought you were helping people, though. Okay. No. <laughs> no. <sighs> all right. For our last dramatic reading, I am going to read a little bit of a conversation between Val, Daniel, and Alex over breakfast that is, like, weirdly charged and erotic. So, you know, whatever. 
<laughs> Was it really painful? Val demanded. Beyond anything I'd ever imagined, Daniel admitted. Val seemed fascinated. Did you scream? Did you beg? Did you writhe? Daniel couldn't help but smile at her enthusiasm. What the fuck? <laughs> all of the above, I believe. They're talking about when he's getting tortured, by the way. Uh, all of the above, I believe. Oh, and I cried like a baby as well. Still smiling, he seemed suddenly comfortable. He turned back to the fridge and started rummaging. Val sighed. I really wish I could have seen that. You're into torture? Alex asked, hiding her concern. Of course Kevin would move them in with a true sadist. Not torture per se, but it's so intoxicating, isn't it? That kind of power? I guess I've never really looked at it that way. Val cocked her head, looking at Alex with undisguised interest. Isn't everything about power? Alex thought about it for a moment. Not in my experience. Back when that was my job, honestly. It sounds naive now, even to me. I was really just trying to save people. There was always a lot hanging in the balance. It was stressful. Val considered that, pursing her lips. That does sound naive. It never gave you a rush being in control. Alex wondered if people felt this way in the psychiatrist's office, this compulsion to speak. Or maybe it was more like being shackled to Alex's own table. I mean, maybe. I'm not a very dangerous person on the surface. I guess there were times that I appreciated the respect. Of course you did. Tell me, have you ever tortured a woman? Twice. Well, once and a half. Explain. I didn't actually have to do anything to the first girl. She was confessing before she was even strapped to the table. She didn't belong in my lab anyway. Any normal interrogation would have gotten the same results. Poor kid. What was she confessing to? A terrorist cell was trying to coerce some suicide bombers in New York. They'd kidnap someone's family back in Iran, in this case her parents, and kill the hostages if the subject wouldn't do as directed. The NSA had it under control before any of the bombs were detonated, but they lost several of the hostages. She sighed. It's always messy with terrorists. And what about the second? That was an entirely different situation. Arms dealer. Was she tough to break? One of the toughest in my career. Val smiled as if the answer greatly pleased her. I've always thought that women could handle a lot more pain than the so-called stronger sex. Men are just all oversized children, really. I've made men beg, and I've made them writhe, and maybe there have been some tears here and there, but no one's ever cried like a baby. The end. I just realized she's a dominatrix. <laughs> <laughs> that makes so much more sense now. That does and... actually explain more. Like, is she is she into, like, the financial domination, you know, where she's just like... Yeah, like, buy me a Jaguar, you garbage man. And he's like, okay. Yeah, because I think she even refers to, like, the whoever bought her the house, like, she wasn't there something like she doesn't, he doesn't use it or she doesn't allow him to use it or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that's definitely not spelled out explicitly in the book, but yeah. it does make a lot more sense. Right? Yeah, that does. Yeah. 
especially that whole conversation now makes so much more sense. And again, I'm wondering if she's poking fun. <laughs> and uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. I hope so. <laughs> oh, me so awesome. I would like this book so much more. <laughs> If anyone gets the chance to interview Stephanie Meyer, please inquire. Yes, yes please. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to our would you rathers. And I will ask, would you rather sleep in the bathtub every night or live without regular internet access? Sleep in the bathtub. Bathtub yeah, every time. Yeah, no question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I because I do think you know Jean mentioned it like I I too have slept in a bathtub occasionally but especially if this were going to be your regular thing I feel like you know get you a little air this mattress put it in the yeah. bathtub you, you don't fill it with enough pillows and blankets like we've yeah. all we've all slept in a bathtub at conventions when we were trying to fit 10 people in one room like exactly happens. exactly it happens they've got those little pillows that with suction cups you can just stick it to the side of the tub and have a nice pillow and yeah they're it, you can make it comfortable yeah and you're very conveniently located if you have to get up in the middle of the night to pee right exactly so, yeah no question all right so we're all in agreement uh, i guess we'll move on would you rather have your toe cut off or be torture poisoned for 10 minutes which we didn't go into this but kevin has had multiple toes cut off by being tortured which okay fine (laughs) (laughs) and uh she when alex is torturing danny she injects him with something where the effects only last for 10 minutes but it feels like way longer because he's in so much pain here's my question um, is it having my toe cut off in a torture scenario or like I go to the doctor and they put me under general anesthesia and they cut my toe off and I wake up? No, I mean, you're, you, it's like a torture toe cutting. Okay. But, I mean, gonna... but we can say you don't get any other torture. It's like you get your toe cut off, you immediately confess and they like let you go. Um, I'm still going to say poison, I think, because like that 10 minutes sucked. And it, it seemed like he was in a lot of pain and crying and, and it was bad. But also, like, it, it seemed to have, like, literally zero ill effects. Once he woke up from being passed out, like, he was fine. So I have bad enough balance as it is. Thank you. Yes. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's my choice as well. I've had two kids and I've been food poisoned a couple of times. I'll take 10 minutes of poisoning. It's nothing. <laughs> but I have terrible balance and I, I need all the toes and all the help I can get. Yeah. Well, also, I like to get pedicures. I mean, not that you can't get them with nine toes, but I just I feel like it's going to ruin my foot aesthetic a little bit to be down a toe in that way. You like even numbers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, and plus, I mean, even though it does seem like a terrible 10 minutes, it is only 10 minutes, and then you get to move on, versus the toe is gone forever. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and then last up, uh, would you rather eat at Steaks and Cakes, which is, of course, the fictional restaurant presented in Christian Mingle the movie that serves only steaks and cakes, (laughs) or... (laughs) The Hideaway, which is the restaurant that uh, Alex and Danny and Kevin open after they kill the vice president or the future vice president. Uh, well, very obviously, my answer is steaks and cakes. Uh, not only are they new, our new sponsor, 
Uh, but I, you know, continue to just really like the idea of being served a platter of 20 ca- uh, twenty steaks and a full cake. Yeah, I'm all for the protein and sugar. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I continue to have my slight reservations about steaks and cakes as a vegetarian because... <laughs> You know, they. I'm sure they don't have veggie burgers there, and they might at the hideaway because it is in Colorado, and they've got to kind of cater to that crowd. But I will stick with our sponsor and my love of cake, and I will also choose steaks and cakes. Uh, great, great round, everyone. Uh, let's move into our reader's advisory where we suggest books or movies or TV to uh, read or watch instead of or in addition to The Chemist. Um, I'm going to start. I noticed that Jean had written The Born Identity before our revelation that this started as, <laughs> as Born Identity fan fiction. So fucking nailed it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and there's uh, there's books of those as well right like books and movies or yeah, they actually yeah it started out as a book series uh the born identity being the first and obviously like everything that's come after has been based on on the books in the series and it's one of those things of like you know if you really want a, a serious thriller just go to the original because this isn't necessarily a very good copy um <laughs> And I didn't realize we were also recommending movies and TV shows, so I only stuck to books. And so it was like, fans of thrillers, go to the original Born Identity. You'll probably like it a lot better. And then if you're a fan of romance, uh, Anne Stewart's uh, Fire and Ice series, literally the first book is it's the gender-bent version of this. So back to a dude spy and a chick. And, and there is, he tortures her at the beginning of the story, but somehow the story is able to pull out the situation and I actually went on a rant a little like as I was reading in one of my notes about the whole like this dynamic of of like someone who is the kind of person who can like turn around kill people and then but somehow still has access to their humanity enough to be able to develop a relationship with someone um, and fall in love like there are skilled storytellers out there that are telling those stories and this is definitely a series in which you don't can't imagine it uh her being able to pull it off and she does and it's actually a really compelling story about like people who kill people finding relationships and the whole series is following different people working for yet again a shadowy government and all that but it also has um like one book in the series uh features a uh, japanese american uh lead man uh, and one of the others features his cousin who's Japanese and very like kind of a wacky, he looks more like a J-pop, like mm-hmm. pop star type of guy. Um, and then uh, one of the, uh, it's kind of a no- novella in the series. Um, if you imagine Judy Dench's uh, turn as M and James Bond, imagine that type of character. She gets her own romance uh, sub story. Yes. Like, it's a really fun series if you're looking for something that's got the same, like, high stakes. People die, people kill people, and it's intense, but you still has a real focus on the relationship. The women, the heroines aren't, you know, they aren't fainting, you know, uh, ingenues. They, they, they're quick thinkers, they're, but you, you still believe that they're not of this, you know, this world, and yet they're still surviving and making it work. So it's it's a good series. It's a... It shows that you can do this kind of thing, and it's, yeah, 
So I recommend it. And I can't think off the top of my head, but you guys create, you guys have a bunch of great recommendations. So I'll just step back and let you take over. (laughs) Um, Also, we always have more things on our website than we have time to talk about. So if you think of something between now and when we post this, let us know and we'll add it to our list. Okay. Um, Awesome. And I do think there's two, two definite splits in reader's advisory appeal here because you could go the thriller route but I think the main point of this is the romance as we've discussed and so I do think somebody who read this and just like wants more of that I'm I I think yeah a lot of the kind of like Navy SEAL romance or like whatever like there's all these genres of romance novels that revolve around this kind of like high stakes adventure or whatever and Mm -hmm. I I think probably you could pick up a lot of those. Uh, I'm going to give a quick shout out to one of my favorite shows that nobody at this point needs to be told to watch, but um, a lot of their sort of low-key stealth reminded me of parts of Breaking Bad and also Better Call Saul, where they're talking about like the money laundering and needing to escape and set up their own lives, and they're even, you know... They go to a vet's office to do sort of backdoor surgery because they can't go to a real doctor in Breaking Bad. Just things like that. Um, and I, I always thought that was very interesting in Breaking Bad because a lot of it is so, like, these guys are way in over their head and they need to get kind of help from the underworld and they're sort of stumbling along. And and honestly, I could fully imagine Walter White doing that whole Home Alone scenario. And also, you know, it's it's about the chemistry, just like the chemist. So to me, that in some ways is reminds me of that. Um, and then one book I'll shout out is Fake ID by Lamar Giles, which is a or Giles perhaps, which is a YA thriller. Um, it's diverse. It's exciting. Uh, if you you know, I'm I'm not recommending it for the romance, but just for the thriller and the kind of you know identity changing whatever business. Check that one out. Um, and I'll recommend just two things for time purposes. Um, there'll be more on the website. And they're essentially, I feel like, the same story told two different ways. And one of them is uh, Allie Carter's Gallagher Girls series, which is about girls at a private school where they are actually learning how to be spies. And the other is the movie Debs, which is basically yes. the same plot, but also there are lesbians. Yes. It's always better with lesbians. <laughs> yes, 100% agree. All right, so we'll have all of those and some more suggestions up on our website, worstbestsellers.com, under Reader's Advisory, so check that out. And now we'll move on to our candy pairing, where we suggest a candy to accompany this book in the way that uh, Alex and Danny's restaurant, The Hideaway, probably suggests wine to accompany their meals. <laughs> And uh, mine is is Pop Rocks because it's, like, made of chemicals and I don't really understand how it works. And then it kind of, like, hurts you to eat too many of them. Uh, Mine is candy cigarettes because they seem like a safer way to quit smoking than nicotine patches as far as this book is concerned. Ew. (laughs) Then mine was uh, Birdie Bots Any Flavor Beans Spinach Flavor because you go in (laughs) thinking you're getting one thing and then you get something else and it's not good. (laughs) (laughs) That's very fair. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Now we'll play our favorite game, The Rock Paper Snicked 
where Kate will say who Dwayne the Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book, and I'll say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book, and Jean will choose which of these most enhances the book, or can choose paper, which is leave the book as is. All right. If Dwayne the Rock Johnson were in this book, uh, instead of it being this book, it would just be the movie Central Intelligence, which I haven't actually seen, but everyone says it was really good, and it has a 70% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so it has to be better than this book, probably. Ooh, compelling argument. Yes. Um, I'm just going to throw in a thing about Central Intelligence that I don't think was publicized widely enough, which is that The Rock's love interest is Melissa McCarthy in that movie. So, Oh, my God. So, anyway. <laughs> yeah. All right. I got to put this on Netflix. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm queuing that up. <clears throat> Thank you. Sorry. Go ahead. I, I don't want to overhype it. She's a very small, teeny tiny part of it, but st- still amazing. Um all right, so now now that I've thrown the game, I'll, uh, if if Wolverine were in this book, I feel like he'd probably be kind of like bros with Kevin from like some sort of CA shield, like fucking whatever. So he'd be just hanging out in Kevin's weird bat cave by himself uh, just for like some quiet time. And he would happen to be there when Alex and Danny show up. And he wouldn't actually really interact with them that much because he's kind of a loner. But he would hear the attackers coming that time when they come. And so he would give them a little bit of advance notice. And that would save Arnie and all of the dogs. Uh, Alex and Danny would still escape and go to Florida. And the rest of the book would be pretty much the same. But Arnie would get to keep hanging out with his dogs and his frozen pizzas. Uh, that's compelling too because I actually liked Arnie and I definitely like the dogs. So they're my favorite characters in the books. Um, so, oh, that's a tough one. Um, I'm, you know, I'm gonna just be predictable. I'm gonna go with the Rock. You know, he's Samoan, so I have to stick with you know <laughs> my Pacifica people. And that you got me so hard with the Melissa McCarthy thing. <laughs> I have to see this movie now. I should have mentioned that afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, it is a delightful film, so I'm I'm very content to lose to that. <laughs> All right, uh, real quick, what is the moral of this story? Uh, the moral of the story is that good spy training is genetic, so as long as your identical twin is a spy, you will naturally be able to survive anything. Mine is trust no one, unless you had really good chemistry with them in public transportation one time. And mine is, falling in love with someone who tortures you is only okay if she's a woman and you're a man. In fact, it's feminist, I I guess, if you're drunk. <laughs> Which we should be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Next up, Duarte's Corner, when my cat Duarte shares his opinions on the book. You know what, Dorte? I mean, I do agree with you that it is kind of bullshit that Kevin had so many dogs and not even one cat. And I mm-hmm. I, I, agree. I think there should have been more cats in this. Serious lack I of representation. <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like a big part of it was some of those those dogs being like very big and intimidating. And it's not that I don't think that you're intimidating, Dorte. Uh, I just think that size is a big factor here, and once you get into, like, mountain lions and stuff, it, it's a whole different ball game. 
Agree to disagree. <laughs> All right. Do any humans have closing thoughts about this book? I mean, I'm going to say I didn't hate it. Like, it was too long, and I kind of, like, despaired of ever finishing it. But overall, the the, the experience of reading it wasn't terrible. No, I thought what... Go ahead. I thought the banter was very good in places. Uh, sometimes it went on too long, which I think is, like, also basically the additional moral of the story of this book is that it went on too long. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were definitely places where I was, like, chuckling at the back and forth between the characters so it could be worse yeah i mean it's great ideas like that that's the thing like uh, if 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 she had pitched the story to me i would have been kind of intrigued and excited for you know all the components and parts it's just the execution that kind of failed for me but Mm. but like you said there are there are good things like the banter um, and some of the, you know, the ideas I'm like, I would have liked to see, it's, it's sad to say, I'm like, I feel bad, but I would have liked to see either more, uh, more passes done on it, editing, um, or somebody else just try it. <laughs> <laughs> I would have like I still like the concept of like, you know, a woman who's, you know, an agent and who, who's done torture, who has a strong, I mean, like, this is literally somebody is pitching my favorite things of, like, a scientist who's also a spy, who's on the run, and, like, this is this kind of thing I love reading, and it just, it didn't come through with what I wanted it to be. So that might be my, I I should own some of those expectations myself as well. Yeah. (laughs) In short, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um, All right, so that's that's the chemist that's what we've got to say about it if you want to talk to us about the chemist you can find us on twitter where we're the worst bestseller with no s at the end because we had to change our name when we went into hiding but we we didn't change it that much um (laughs) (laughs) or we're on facebook and goodreads.com where we are the worst bestseller spelled normally you can also access that Goodreads group very easily from the link on our website, worstbestsellers.com, where we have all kinds of stuff there. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you do, please take a moment to rate and review us. When you rate and review us, it pops us up on the charts and makes it easier for new people to find us. If you don't rate and review us, we might be forced to find someone who is in hiding somewhere under a vague androgynous name to come out of retirement to hunt you down and torture you for 10 minutes before deciding she's secretly in love with you, which just is a lot of trouble. Like, there's easier ways to get a partner. Mm-hmm. So just rate and review us. And and listen, like, there was a, no marketing budget for the chemist. So you need to boost this podcast so that people can hear about this book, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Doing everybody a solid. <laughs> Uh, you can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash worstbestsellers, where you can pledge a small recurring monthly donation uh, to give us some funds for better equipment and uh, special treats for our subscribers there. I thought you were going to say special treats for Duarte, and I was like, oh, he does get those. Uh, <laughs> well, he does. He does, yes. We do keep Duarte in treats with Patreon money, in theory. 
Um, also, you may have seen on Twitter and on Facebook that our live show that was supposed to be uh, last month was canceled, or earlier this month, I guess, was canceled. Uh, we have rescheduled it, so you can come to Trident Booksellers in Boston on Newberry Street on March 9th to hear us talk about The Notebook with Margaret H. Willison. Yeah. All right. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at Renata Snacks. You can follow me personally on Twitter at 14 Across. And you can find me on Twitter at Fangirl Jean and pretty much any social media as uh, under Fangirl Jean and also at FangirlJean.com. And it is Jean, J-E-A-N-N-E. N-N-E, yes. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah, if, if you're not following Jean on Twitter, you absolutely should be. Um, I always love her commentary on books and movies and just all kinds of things that are happening in the world. But mostly books and movies, I think. <laughs> yeah, mostly. Yeah, I like to call myself an indie uh, media critic because I have an opinion about everything. And I'm usually sharing it on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, find her there. Um, Jean, thanks so much for joining us and for slogging through The Chemist with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me, and it was totally worth slogging through to (laughs) spend some time with you guys. I love the show. All right. Well, thank you so much, and thanks to everyone for listening. And we will be back in two weeks with uh, Cookie and Peanut by Bethany Frankel, a picture book written by a real housewife. So so that should be fun. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.